This is part two of chapter one of Pauline Tabor's book. Um, the chapter is called What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This? This is the second segment to this chapter. If you have not listened to the first part, I would strongly recommend you do. Well, I admitted. It is just about the strangest date I've ever had, but my friend told me you were a wonderful gentleman, and I was curious. I guess I wanted to see for myself if there really was one real gentleman left in Kentucky. The colonel chuckled and assured me that he hoped he was a gentleman. However, after he invited me for a ride in his new car, a sporty maroon Packard coupe, I began to have my doubts again asking myself if this impulsive escapade was going to end up merely as a high-class version of the same old propositions that plagued me almost every working day. As it turned out, though, the evening was a pleasant surprise. The colonel quickly staked the claim on my heart by stopping at the town's finest restaurant for a seemingly extravagant dinner, followed by a leisurely drive through the countryside during which the subject of sex never once was mentioned. Instead, the colonel emerged in my eyes as a, love, as a lonely man who desperately needed a friend he could talk with. He was, I learned, a college-educated man in his late fifties, not quite as old as my father, and he did indeed have a, have a wife in another town <clears throat> and grown children. His marriage, he said, had for years been a loveless, meaningless arrangement which he and his wife were reluctant to end because of the children and the family's social reputation. I guess we chatted for an hour or so, discovering each other before the colonel mentioned, after parking outside my parents' home, the question of a loan. Pauline, he said, your friend told me you needed a loan to tide you over some rough times. I wish you'd take this as a friend and pay me back whenever times get better. Saying this, he handed me four ten-dollar bills, a sum that seemed at the time like a veritable fortune, and silenced my attempt to thank him, he added, I want you to know there are no strings attached. I value your friendship, and I hope it can continue. Indeed, our friendship continued, and within a few weeks, deepened quite naturally into an emotional relationship. My first sexual involvement since the breakup of my marriage. Subconsciously, perhaps, the colonel was a father image, but I didn't see him as a man some 30 years my senior. To me, he was not only a skilled, considerate lover, but also a highly sophisticated man with a wide range of knowledge and interests, a man who stirred my first awareness in the world of books and the meaning of life. He was also a a generous benefactor. Although, to keep up appearances and to retain a feeling of independence, I continued to work. My economic pressures were suddenly eased. The colonel continued to help me out with cash, loans, gifts, which I told myself he could afford and which I earned through services rendered faithfully and enthusiastically. However, as this extra income began to be reflected in new clothes for myself and my children and an increasing amount of money for our two-family budget, my parents' suspicions solidified into a stricken realization that I'd become a kept woman. Recriminations and quarrels became a daily nightmare, putting serious new stresses and strains on a household already beset by the problems normally involved in two families living under the same roof. 
At last, to help ease the tensions, the colonel gave me a hand in renting and furnishing a small apartment for myself and my sons. With this move, I gained a renewed sense of adult independence, clouded only by the knowledge that I was now an authentic, full-fledged mistress. My liaison with the colonel continued in this comfortable pattern for a year. Gradually, though, I became bored and restless. Although I admired and liked the colonel as a friend, I began to look upon him as a generous but overage man of another generation whose demands upon my time were becoming a bit wearing. After much soul-searching, I decided that a woman in my precarious financial situation could not afford to cling to a starry-eyed romantic outlook on life. It was a tough world outside my apartment, a world in which a person... To get ahead had to be hard-headed and realistic. Slowly and painfully, I faced the unpleasant fact that no matter how hard I might try, I had no special skills or training that would enable me to accomplish a great deal in life through my own efforts. It dawned on me that everything I wanted in life would have to depend on my ability to use other people to my own advantage. Once I evolved this practical philosophy, I saw my relationship with the colonel as a one-way dead-end street. There were, I told myself with a growing sense of confidence, bound to be many other men who who would be just as generous and perhaps even younger than my present sugar daddy. One evening, after building up my courage, I told the colonel what was on my mind. He was distressed and sought to change my mind, but when he realized I was determined to make a break, he proved to be a perfect gentleman to the bitter end. He even used his influence to get me a job as a clerk in the office of a tobacco company in Louisville so I could start out in new surroundings with a more secure position than door-to-door selling. It was a relief to get away from Bowling Green, a relief which I'm sure was shared by my family. Although my involvement with the colonel was not generally known, because we'd been discreet it had shocked members of my family who lived in fear that this dreadful skeleton ultimately would be exposed in making the move though there was one problem until i could get settled in louisville and firmly adjusted to my new job my two sons would have to remain in bowling green my father's health was failing rapidly so it was out of the question for my parents to take over as full-time babysitters but the problem was solved when my former mother-in-law a fine compassionate woman with whom i remained on friendly terms volunteered to take care of the children my new life in louisville was an as an apprentice career woman with my own small apartment was an exhilarating experience unhappily it didn't last long after working for six months making new friends and developing new interests i was stricken with typhoid fever for several weeks i was desperately ill and as i slowly recovered with my income shut off and even the future of my job in doubt my bills piled up to a critical level finally i had to call upon my parents for help after a family conference it was decided that the only solution would be for me to move back in with them in bowling green Thus, in late 1932, I found myself back where I started. No money, a mountain of unpaid bills, and once more imposing on my hard-pressed parents. In addition, I no longer was the slender, vivacious Pauline of the past. My illness had affected certain glandular functions. By the time I was fully recovered, I'd gained more than 100 pounds, which was no, which no amount of dieting could melt off. Suddenly, my 5-foot-6-inch frame had expanded into solid but hefty matronly proportions. I wasn't sloppily fat, just an imposing hunk of female flesh which I gradually learned to live with. When my strength had returned, I went back to my old job selling hoisery and cosmetics door-to-door. This time, however, I didn't have the colonel's generosity to bolster my income. After helping me get settled in Louisville, he had removed himself permanently from my life. And this, I quickly learned when I returned to ringing doorbells, was a severe financial loss. 
Times have been tough before I gave up selling and moved to Louisville, but they were a lot tougher now. President Hoover's promises about prosperity were just around the corner, had failed to materialize, and though some folks said things would get better when the newly elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved into the White House, such hope seemed like whistling in the dark. Jobs were few and far between in 1932. More businesses were going broke, relief rolls and bread lines were growing, few people had money to spend on such luxuries as silk stockings and cosmetics. The important question in those days of gloom and doom was not whether the lady of the house was stylish and beautiful, it was a far more basic question of whether or not she and her family had enough to eat. Nevertheless, as 1932 limped forlornly off the darker pages of history and was succeeded by 1933 with its equally depressing prospects, I managed to somehow eke out a living of sorts. But it wasn't easy, working endless hours for meager commissions, complicating matters my father's health worsened and by summer he was dead. Under this barrage of struggle, worries, and sorrow, my next steps from the so-called path of righteousness seemed to me of little significance. Sinning, as preached from the pulpit of church I faithfully attended every Sunday, had little meaning in a world which mere survival seemed constantly in doubt. Like the long interlude with the colonel, my next misadventure came about accidentally. I'd gone downtown. I'd gone to a downtown hotel to have lunch with a friend. As I was leaving, a Negro bellhop whom I'd known for years approached me with understandable nervousness, for men of color in those days rarely conferred with the white ladies on delicate subjects, especially down south in Kentucky. Miss Pauline, the bellhop stammered, a gentleman done give me this note for you. He thrust a piece of hotel stationery in my hand and scurried away. I stopped at the hotel entrance and, after making sure no one in the lobby was watching me, I read the note hurriedly, then reread it more carefully. I couldn't help admiring you when you came into the hotel, the note said. I would be highly honored to meet you. I'm in room 322. The note was signed, an ardent admirer. Even to a semi-innocent such as myself at the time, the meaning of the note was clear. The mystery guest obviously had visions of the quickie romance. I snorted scornfully, crumpled up the note, and quickly left the hotel. Outside, though, I stopped suddenly to review the situation. What the hell, I told myself. You're a big girl now, and you need the money real bad. As long as you've got the commodity he wants, why not see what this character has in mind? I turned, walked back into the hotel, and darted into the nearest elevator. Up on the floor, I knocked on the up on the third floor. I knocked on the door of room 322. It swung open, and I found myself staring at a tall, attractive man clad in a good quality satin lounging robe, and judging by the bare, hairy legs that jutted from below the hem, not much else. "Baby, you are a sight for sore eyes!" he exclaimed in a bit of an overworked dialogue that immediately pinpointed him as one of the breezy, back-slapping traveling salesmen who frequented the hotel. "Come on in and have a drink." I entered the room, wondering just how a girl goes about arranging a commercial transaction of this type, and perched gingerly on the edge of the nearest chair while my ardent admirer got out a silver flask and prepared a a couple of hefty highballs. Looking about nervously, I saw a bed looming obscenely in the middle of the room. My God, what kind of a fix have you got to have yourself into now? I asked myself, realizing that it was too late to weasel out of my predicament. My new friend interrupted my despairing thoughts, handing me a highball and lifting his own glass for a toast that must have wowed the girls at a pumpkin center one time. Here's to a girl with plenty of class, he proclaimed grandly, diplomatically leaving an unvoiced 
leaving unvoiced the second line of that time-worn, dirty jingle. Although I'd never cared for the taste of liquor, I took a big gulp, thinking it would help prop up my fading courage. Lord, I still remember that drink. It must have been 200-proof panther piss. I coughed and sputtered and gagged. Finally, I managed to regain my breath and deposit the highball glass on a table. What's the matter? The hotel room Lothario inquired with a grin. Is that white lightning too strong? It's too powerful for me, I managed to wheeze. Then, struggling to regain a semblance of composure, I decided to get down to the nitty-gritty details of the transaction. I didn't come here to drink, I said in what I hoped was a professional approach. Just what did you have in mind? My roommate grinned again, winking lewdly. You know, he said, I thought we could have us a nice party if the price is right. The price? I haven't even thought about the price. How about $10, I suggested, hopefully. $10? He snorted. Honey, I don't want to buy you. I just want to rent you for a while. Five bucks and nothing more. Well, I thought with weary resignation, that's five more than I've earned today, so why not? I accepted his offer, pocketed his money, and got down to business. A half hour later, I was walking out of the hotel again, five dollars richer, and, oddly enough, not feeling a bit unclean or guilty. Hell's bells, I told myself. That was a quick and easy way to earn money. Maybe I've been overlooking a gold mine right in my own backyard. The question was, how does a girl get customers? The well-heeled visitors in town, not the local yokels with big gossipy mouths and skinny bankrolls. I put this question to a colored girl I knew and trusted, and she informed me that the bellhop who steered me to room 322 had a brisk side business arranging dates for certain ones that available at price women in town with lonely guests at the hotel. In return, of course, he expected to get at least a dollar cut out of the deal. Taking the hint, I dispatched my friend with a $1 token of appreciation for the flesh-peddling bellhop. She made the necessary arrangements, and I soon found myself working as a part-time call girl in addition to the daily peddling of hoisery and cosmetics. No doubt about it, sex for sale was a fast-buck business, but for me, it proved to be a disillusioning and not very rewarding experience. There seemed to be an endless haggling over price, and sometimes when I'd arrive as scheduled at a customer's room, he turned me away because I was too big. After two wretched months, I informed the bellhop that I was no longer interested in this brand of dating. Once again, I found myself depending entirely on making an honest living as a doorbell pusher. But, as I made my rounds with my kid of samples, I couldn't help but think there had to be some smart way to capitalize on sex. Experience had taught me to view the grand passion with a strictly commercial attitude. I also knew from experience that this would be a business in which there was never a shortage of customers. The question was, how does a girl get into the business I had in mind, the operation of a whorehouse, where other girls handle the strenuous labor of servicing the male animal? Oddly enough, I discovered the answer to that question during an evening bridge party at the home of a friend. There were several tables of card enthusiasts. One of the players at my table was a visitor from Tennessee. A worldly sort of fellow, he seemed to delight in regaling us with uh, stories of his wicked, wicked ways. One of his tales dealt with a famous madame named May, who ran a notorious bordello in Clarksville, Tennessee. That's not a very big town, I observed, sensing that maybe I was on the right track at last. How can a madame with such a place make a living in a town like that? Madame May, the gentleman from Tennessee assured me, had made a fortune in Clarksville because she operated a high-class house that drew customers from all nearby states, including Kentucky. 
She's really a remarkable woman. One of my favorite people, she said quite seriously. Conversation at the table drifted on to other subjects, but my interest was aroused. As the evening ended, I cornered the Tennessee storyteller and I told him I would like to meet and talk with May. He looked at me quizzically as he feared he was either being quietly kidded or faced with some kind of a female nut. Finally, he just he seemed to decide that I was joking. Why do you want to meet May? He asked, his eyebrows raised in mock alarm. Have you decided that you want to go work in her house? Of course not, I replied with such a frankness that even startled me. But if May can be so successful running a brothel in a town like Clarksville, I see no reason why I can't do the same thing here in Bowling Green. And if I could meet her, maybe she'd give me some advice. My bluntly spoken ambition seemed to delight the fun-loving Tennessean. Pauline, he said, you're a real trooper. Of course I'll help you. And he not only gave me May's address and unlisted telephone number, but he advised me to mention his name when I called her. If you ever open a house here, you let me know and I'll be your first customer, he said. The next day, I stopped at a telephone booth and invested some money in a sweet, long-distance call to Clarksville. It proved to be the wisest investment I ever made. The phone at the other end of the line rang a few times, and then a soft, cultured woman's voice answered. Miss May speaking. May I help you? Hurriedly, I identified myself and told her how I'd gotten her private phone number from one of her friends. Before I could go any further, May exclaimed happily about what a great guy the Tennessee gentleman was. Any friend of his is a friend of mine, she said. What's the problem? You want to turn some tricks down here at my house? At that time, I had no idea what a trick was, but instinctively, I realized that May was offering me a job. I don't want to work in your house, I explained with as much tact as I could muster, but I heard so many wonderful stories about you that I'd like to open a house like yours here in Bowling Green. The trouble is, I haven't the faintest idea how to get started, and I thought you might be kind enough to give me some advice, sort of teach me the business, I guess. May's laughter tinkled like silver bells across the miles between Clarksville and Bowling Green. I've had some funny requests in my time, but this beats everything, she said gleefully. I never thought I'd be asked to teach a course in running a whorehouse. Suddenly, her laughter erupted again. Well, I said when May's mirth had subsided, can I impose on you and come down to Clarksville for a visit? Honey child, May said, any girl with your gumption is bound to succeed. You come on down anytime you please. The welcome mat will always be out for you at my house.